It's good to be with you. I bring you greetings from Emmanuel Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, where I am the pastor. Uh, my wife also sends greetings. She is, we're very excited because uh, we're expecting our fourth child, and we have three under the age of five, five three, five and under, and they're all boys and very uh, hyperactive and active boys, and we're sending them away with the grandparents tonight. Uh, and we're getting a night away as kind of a little baby moon before the next uh, baby comes. So I'm, I'm very excited uh, tonight to be with you, but I'm very, very excited to go home and prepare to get away for, for, for a couple days from the boys, who we love very, very dearly. Um, we'll be glad to see them, but we're also glad to see them go. Um, so it's, it's good to be with you to see some faces that I, that I know, particularly the face of my, my dear friend Martha, who I'm surprised, very surprised and happy to see it's good. Just as I saw you here, it reminded me of a story you told me, which I'm going to end up using as an illustration later in the sermon. So you can correct me if I'm wrong. Don't worry. It's, it's a good one. Uh, but it, it's good to see you here. Um, I apologize in a little bit for this sermon because you're jumping into the middle of a series that I'm doing at Emmanuel. I'm preaching through the book of Exodus. We've been doing that since, uh, since February. And we've just gotten to beginning the Ten Commandments. And this morning, we started looking at the Ten Commandments, particularly the first one. And so I thought, it stands enough on its own to do here with you this evening. But uh, I'll try to make sure I don't say anything that is referencing and that people should know because they should have been part of this series uh, thus far. So you're kind of jumping in on the middle of the series. But hopefully this one stands alone on its own as we look at uh, God's uh, Ten Commandments to us as given at Mount Sinai. So our reading this evening is going to come from Exodus chapter 20, which is found on page 61 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. We'll be looking at the first commandment, but for context, I will read all, um, all of them, verses 1 through uh, 17 of Exodus chapter 20. Hear the reading of God's word. And God spoke... All these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife 
or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let us seek the Lord's face once more as we look at his word. Father, we look at these words you spoke from Sinai, very clearly speaking to your people your revealed will of what is required and called on people to live with you. I pray that you will both... uh, Wound us where we need wounded, Lord, and you will bind us up with the balm of Gilead, Lord, and point us to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I think it was in 2007 when I was a a student in college. Uh, One day, uh, it was nearing our fall break, and a number of my friends really, really didn't have any plans for fall break, and we had just been planning on sticking around and studying because we had exams coming up. And one of my friends, I don't remember who it was, said, why don't we just go to Philadelphia? I was out in, this is a bigger thing because I didn't live in Philadelphia, this was in Michigan. And so we literally got all our stuff, got in the car and drove through the night to uh, Pennsylvania, just for fun as college students are want to do. And on our trip, we kind of, as we were in the car, we thought of a bunch of places we wanted to stop. We stopped at the Gettysburg National uh, Battlefield, and we decided to stop at the, uh, the Capitol building of, uh, of Pennsylvania in Harrisburg. Have any of you ever been to the Capitol in Harrisburg? I commend it to you. It's an absolutely gorgeous building. It's one of these gems of turn-of-the-century architecture. It was built, like, right around 1900. This gorgeous building that is just bedecked with as much ornate paintings and gilding as you could imagine. It's this gorgeous building. But one of the things that struck me most about this building was when we came to the, uh, the, the room where the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania sits. And they really did something really interesting. And around the building, they have all these paintings depicting great moments in jurisprudence, great law documents. I think the Magna Carta is up there somewhere. I think there are pictures of other great law theorists. But the centerpiece, right behind the seat where the Chief Justice sits, right behind him, so if you're looking at the Chief Justice, you see behind him this large painting of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. And it's very, this very epic painting. Moses is in this very dramatic pose as lightning is coming down. And he, he's there with the tablets of stone as the lightning comes and strikes and writes the words of the Ten Commandments on this piece of, on the two tablets of stone. And written under them in very ornate language are the Ten Commandments written there right behind the seat of the Chief Justice. It's very striking. And I was thinking, like, as I was looking at this, I was like, this is rather remarkable. I thought the ACLU would have had this gone a long time ago, but there it still is. And I quickly went and got, I wanted a good picture of it because the light in the room was kind of dark, and so you couldn't really get take a good picture. And so I went and got one of the uh, promotional pictures they had of the Supreme Court room for, for, for tourists. And one, in this flyer is a picture, was a picture of the current Supreme Court body. They're seated in front of this picture. And they cropped it so that you couldn't see the, um, the picture of Moses, but you could see behind their heads the, the writing of the Ten Commandments. And as soon as I looked at this, I just started laughing. And I quickly went and showed it to my friends, and they all started laughing as well, because what they had done in this picture is they had gone in Photoshop and blurred out 
the Ten Commandments behind these justices' heads. Um, and I thought there's, a, there's not a more apt illustration of our current society. The Ten Commandments are there. We know they're in the background, but they're a little bit of an embarrassment. And so let's just kind of blur them out. They're, they're part of our history. We understand that they were important at one time. But if we can just blur them out and kind of forget they were there, that would be for the best. And I think that is in many ways how we as a society have come to treat the Ten Commandments. Things that were very important in our legal past, for sure, but in our theological past as a nation as well. Things we are a little embarrassed by and wish they weren't there. I went on a mission trip to Arizona about this same time, and one of the evangelistic tools we used is we had these surveys. And we say we wanted to go around and survey people and say, hey, we're just trying to figure out how well people know the Ten Commandments. And so we'd ask people you know, to tell us the Ten Commandments, and then we'd go and check off how many of them they could say. And it was amazing to me how many uh, Christians and non-Christians didn't really know the Ten Commandments. Normally they'd get a couple of them right. Oftentimes they'd go to Jesus' summary of the Ten Commandments, that, you know, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, or do unto others as you would have them do unto do, to you, which aren't actually in the Ten Commandments, but are, you know, good summaries of what the Ten Commandments say. But almost always, everybody would start with that second part of the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments kind of have these two parts. The first part is all focused on God and His worship. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make an idol. You shall... Um, you shall remember the Sabbath day. You shall you know, not take the names of the Lord in vain. You know, those first are four are focused on God. The next six are kind of focused on our duties towards man. And everybody would always start down there with you shall not murder or some summary of that section of the Ten Commandments. Which is really striking because of how man-centered it is. But the Ten Commandments are not man-centered. They're God-centered. In fact, they start out with that very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Because the Ten Commandments are not primarily given as rules for how we should live together as human beings. They do include that. But the Ten Commandments are given as rules for how we shall live with God. They're rules for living with God. Because why are the Ten Commandments given? If you remember your, you know, where this is in redemptive history... God has just rescued the people from Egypt. In fact, he starts out by recounting the history of his rescuing the people from the land of Egypt and brought them out into the wilderness. Why? He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell with you. I purpose to dwell with you. In fact, when we leave Sinai, I'm going to give you instructions for making a movable Mount Sinai, a tabernacle, so I can come and dwell and live with you. But if you're going to live with me, here's, what, here's some requirements that are called to live with me as your God. Rules for living with God is almost what you could call the Ten Commandments. And that includes how we should treat one another. But it's in the context of how we should live with God. And so it's this first commandment is the foundational one to the rest. You shall have no other gods before me. It's this first commandment that God is God and we should worship Him as God alone that makes them the Ten Commandments and not the Ten Suggestions. Because if there's other gods who we, are, who we can worship and go to and look for direction, then we kind of have to weigh who we listen to in certain areas. But He says, no, I am God. You shall worship Me alone. And therefore I give you 
these commandments, these directions for how you are to live in my presence. So this evening, I want us to look at three different points, three different aspects of this first commandment. First, we'll see that it's an exclusive commandment. Second, we'll see that it's a comprehensive commandment. And third, we'll see that it's a liberating commandment. Exclusive, comprehensive, and liberating. First, it's an exclusive commandment. God tells the people of Israel, you shall have no other gods before me. There is only one God whom you are to worship, and that is Yahweh. Which God? The one who rescued you from Egypt, who called you and brought you out into the wilderness to be his people. You shall worship no other God. This is important because he's not just saying that, you know, you need to make sure that, you know, there's all these other gods that you can worship, but just make sure you give me the priority. Right? Just put me at the top of the pantheon. And the, you know, make sure you give me the most time. No. You shall have no other gods in my presence. Literally, before me means before my face or in my presence. And as he says earlier in Exodus, my presence is everywhere. All the earth is mine, he says in Exodus 19.5. In Psalm 139, the psalmist reflects, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God's presence, God's face is everywhere. He says, you shall have no other gods before me in my presence because I am Yahweh. I am the I Am. This would have been a very shocking command to the people at that time. And, as you know, it's a very shocking command to people today as well. But at the, at the time, the, the different religions, the different gods, the, didn't really require you to have only one god. You know, Baal didn't much care whether you worshipped Molech, as long as you made sure to worship Baal. Polytheism, many gods, was the norm. Because they conceived of the various gods the way they did people. You know, if you need different things, you, there's not one, a one-stop shop, right? You have to go and you have to balance different people and certain powers. You had to know who you needed to make happy and who you needed to, you know, uh, talk to in order to get what you needed. If you wanted, you know, rain, Baal was your man. Right? He was the guy you went to if you wanted rain. But if you needed something else, if you needed a good harvest or you needed help in war, you'd have to go to a different god because he was more kind of capable. He had more ability in this area. Uh, children, I don't, you know, I'm sure you've never done this. I'm sure you've never done this, you know, because you're, you're good kids, right? Um, but I'm told that kids will sometimes go to one of their parents' Uh, to their father and say, hey, dad, can I do this? And the father will say, no. And the child goes downcast and walks over to mom and says, hey, mom, can I do this? Without mentioning that dad has already said no. I'm sure you've never done that at all because that's the polytheistic principle at work. That's the understanding that there are multiple you know, authorities, and you just got to make sure you go to the right one. And if one doesn't give what you want, you go to the other. But God is not like that. 
You shall have no other gods before me. He demands an exclusive relationship with his people. Marriage is the good illustration of this. In fact, it's one that Scripture uses many times to describe the relationship between God and his people. Marriage is supposed to be, in its design, an exclusive relationship. Uh, Kevin DeYoung uh, has a helpful illustration of this when he thinks about, uh, you know, that you cannot have a a both-and relationship with your wife. Suppose a husband came home and said, Honey, it's so good to see you. I want to introduce you to someone who's very special to me. Don't get me wrong, you're also special to me. But I've met someone else. She's lovely. And I'm going to spend some time with her. But also a lot of time with you. I just want to let you know that some nights I'm going to be with her instead. I think the two of you will get along just fine. You'll be great friends. You both mean so much to me. Now, what do you think that wife would say? How do you think she would feel about that? I think most of us would understand it, that she would be quite angry. And she, would say, she wouldn't say, you know, that's great, dear, I'm honored, I can still be part of your life. No, she would say, it's me or her, make up your mind, you must choose. It's not a both and. Marriage is an exclusive relationship, one that requires commitment. And no one would judge her for saying this charge of choose with great passion. Marriage is a relationship which demands forsaking all others. And so it is with God. Polytheism, the wanting to have and kind of hedge your bets and see if you can get something from other religions in case they might exist, it was a perennial problem in Israel. I find it interesting if you uh, go to the, uh, if you're ever in Jerusalem and go to the uh, Israeli Museum there in, in Jerusalem and you go through there, I was, I was initially surprised about how many archaeological artifacts they dug up of just false gods all over the land of Israel. They, all these little statues of Baal they've uncovered, the little bulls and the little things. Because, why? Well, number one, you wouldn't find a lot of statues of Yahweh because you're not supposed to make statues of Yahweh, so you wouldn't find that kind of archaeological evidence of that. But two, just how prevalent polytheism was in, even among the people of Israel after they're in the land, which is why, which is what you'd expect as you go and read the prophets. What are the prophets always saying? Stop worshipping other gods. Stop hedging your bets. Worship Yahweh alone. In fact, you know, after Israel's in the land, they go through uh, the initial stages of the conquest led by Joshua. And then at the end of Joshua's life, Joshua calls the whole people of Israel together for a renewal of their covenant with Yahweh. And what does he say to them? Joshua 24. Now therefore, Joshua says, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people of Israel need to choose what they chose before. 
but they have to choose who they will serve. They can't kind of hedge their bets and do both and. As I said, this was one of the most offensive features of uh, biblical religion in that day. Nobody else required this kind of exclusive understanding of a relationship with God. But Yahweh says, you shall worship me and me alone, for I am the only true God. If you talk to you know, most people today, most people would still say they believe in some sort of higher power. Right? Most people believe in some sort of, of higher power. But what, is it, what they object to is the understanding that there is only one way towards a communion with that power. Or they object and want to say that there, is, you know, we, there might be a God, but we can't really know a lot about him. We don't really know what he wants. We just kind of hope for some sort of, kind of communion with the spiritual. The spiritual, but not religious, which is what you hear a lot today. But this is completely against the God that's revealed in the Bible. He's not a vague God with some abstract qualities who you can't really know what he's like, but instead, what does God do? He speaks. And he speaks clearly. He speaks personally. The commands here, which is something that should obscured in the, in the English, uh, the you is the second person singular. He's speaking to you individually. You shall have no other gods before me. You individually, not kind of you, the morphous people in general, but you specifically shall have no other gods before me. He speaks clearly. He speaks personally. And this is true in the New Testament as it is in the Old. This exclusive relationship which God calls upon us is part of the New Testament Christianity as well. Jesus Christ is the revelation of that eternal God and is the only one through whom we can know the Father. John 14.6 Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name except the name of Jesus Christ under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. It would be this demand for exclusive worship of God alone through Jesus Christ, which would lead many of the early Christians to be thrown into the lions. Again, the Romans didn't care if you worshipped Yahweh, if they worshipped Jesus Christ. They demanded that you also worship the emperor, that you also pay homage to the uh, gods of Rome. And when the Christians said, no, we can't do that, then that's when the persecution started. And so it is today in many ways. You know, people don't care if you worship the one true God, you know, or if you say that. But if you kind of go around asserting that, that's what's offensive. So this first commandment calls us to a exclusive relationship with Yahweh through Jesus Christ. Second, it's a comprehensive command. One of the features in the series on the Ten Commandments we're doing at Emmanuel, one of the features we're noting of the Ten Commandments is our confession and catechisms kind of unpack, is that they're double-sided. In other words, when a command is given you know, not to do something, also implied in that is the positive of what you are to do. For instance, uh, you, know, you shall not murder means that you should also seek to preserve life. 
You shall not steal means you also seek to care for and protect your neighbor's property. You shall not lie also means that you should tell the truth, right? So the, the, so the, the negative implies the positive or the you know, positive implies the negative. You shall you know, keep the Sabbath day means you shall not break the Sabbath day, right? So the kind of double-sided nature to these commandments where a negative is given and implies positive duties. And we see this in this command. You shall have no other gods before me. The flip side of that, the positive to that, means that this God shall be your God, and you shall love him wholly and exclusively. We see the positive aspect of this command given in Deuteronomy 6, the, the, what's often called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. This is what Jesus himself will say is the greatest commandment. And this is basically that that first commandment and the Ten Commandments put positively. It's the you shall not put as you shall. In other words, God is not just at the top of our priority list, but he is our priority list. Not just part of your soul is to be dedicated to him, part of your heart, part of your might, but all of it. And the rest of the Ten Commandments kind of unpack what that looks like. How that, what that looks like in your worship. What that looks like in your relationship with your neighbor. How do you serve the Lord with your whole heart? Here's how you do it in, how, in not murdering, but instead caring for your neighbor. That's part of our service to the Lord. It's by not coveting, but, but, but being satisfied in what God gives us and trusting him. The commandments also are not just about external actions, but they turn us inside out. They go down to the very core of our heart motivations. The command is not just concerned about bowing down to other gods and idols, but the root of all idolatry, which is the human heart. John Calvin famously said, that the heart of man is an idol factory. We come up with so many different, multiple ways of things we want to trust in or desire other than God. And when we do that, those things end up enslaving us and bringing us into bondage. Uh, Heidelberg Catechism question uh, 95 puts it very well. It says, What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which someone trusts in place of or alongside of the one true God who has revealed himself in, the word, in his word. Inventing something or having something in which one trusts instead of the one true God. Idolatry will be defined different ways in the New Testament beyond just whether you worship Baal or some other false god. Uh, Matthew 6.24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For you either will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or, 2 Timothy 3, there are those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Or Colossians 3, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He defines covetousness itself as idolatry of trusting and desiring something other than God. Anything can 
if it comes out of its place of being a gift of God and becomes something which we trust or which we desire more than God, can become an idol. I'm always amused, particularly as a pastor, by of a story that I think I first heard from Dale Ralph Davis, but of a British pastor in the 17th or 18th century named Grimshaw. And he had this prize cow, which he was very fond of. He loved this cow, and I don't know if any of you are farmers. I grew up on a farm, and so I you know, know how much you, affection you can have for an animal. Maybe you have a dog, which you love quite a lot. But he, he loved this cow deeply, and he started to become worried, though, when, when he would start praying, thoughts of his cow kept creeping into his mind. He would begin to get very worried about something happening to his cow, so much so that it was, he was obsessing about protecting and preserving this cow. And he said, this is a problem. This cow has become too important in my life. It's moved from something that's a gift from God to something that's controlling me. And so he decided to sell the cow. And when the buyer came to buy this cow, the buyer was understandably wondering, okay, this looks like a really nice cow. Why is it being sold? Nobody would sell this cow. What's wrong with it? And Grimshaw assured the buyer that he said, hey, don't worry. The fault of this cow will not be the fault that, uh, fault that you will have. Her fault will not be a fault to you. You see, she follows me into the pulpit, he said. You know, her, she, her, the thought of her, she followed him into the pulpit. I think it's a good illustration of how anything, when it moves from the place of gift to master, can become an idol in our life. Good things. Marriage, family, children, respect, money, things, peace, security, comfort, anything, if it rises from the level of gift to being a master, and becomes an idol. And when it moves to that position, it can become a, something that keeps us in bondage. In fact, we can use the very worship of God in service of our idol. We pray to God, but we're not really praying to God. We're coming to God because we hope we can get something from God to still allow us to keep our idol. Or when we confess our sins, we confess our sins in such a way that would allow us to hang on to that thing which is really mastering us. Lord, forgive me, but don't make me give up this. It's not an exact parallel, but um, I'm reminded of, of a story from, from Africa about uh, there was a, a church in Nakhle. I think it was Dave Aachen who was telling me about this. He said that this church, I looked, I looked as we walked by, it had, had, the church had a, uh, the name of the denomination on it. But he said, actually, they just kind of changed that sign depending on which missionary happened to be in town because they were getting supported by like three or four different missionary organizations and they told each of them that they were this denomination. They didn't change what they did. They, they did the same thing they did. They just changed the sign. And so it is with us. We can kind of do what we do and we put up the sign that we hope will get us to keep doing what we're doing. We worship God in that kind of way. Not really letting it go to our heart. We're serving an idol, even sometimes in the way we serve God. And that brings us to our last point. 
this commandment is a liberating command. This command is such a liberating command. When God commands the people of Israel to worship no one else but Yahweh, he's saying, you don't need to worry about all these other gods. You don't need to be in bondage to all these other things. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, your father knows that you need him, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You don't need to be concerned about them. I'm freeing you from these gods. I'm freeing you from these idols that you've created. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, to be a redeemed people. Worshipping anything or anyone other than God is not freedom. It's bondage of the worst kind. Worshiping the God as worshiping God as He's revealed Himself in Jesus Christ is not a restrictive bondage, but is a freedom from bondage. To use an illustration, those of you uh, who are married, maybe you remember what it was like to be single. Now, I'm told by singles today that being single is much worse than it was back when those of you have been married a long time. But being single can be pretty hard when you're wanting to be married. Because you're trying to, you're in some sense trying to serve everybody, right? Is this somebody I should love? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Is, it, is this somebody I should love? I don't know. Is this somebody I should love? I don't know. And there's, there's a desire to love something, but not knowing what you should love. And you're trying to impress everybody and, you know, be the kind of person that this person would like. And that can be crazy making. Those of you who are, you know, currently looking maybe can testify to how difficult that can be. But there's something radically freeing when you stand up and finally make those marriage vows to someone. It seems like very restrictive. You get up and say, I will love no one else but you. That seems very restrictive, right? But there's an incredible freedom that comes with that. You know who you're supposed to love. And you know you're free, you're free not to love anybody else, but to totally be fo- devoted to this one person. What a freedom comes with commitment. Commitment brings freedom. And in this sense, God says, as I call you to be in this covenanted relationship with me, I'm freeing you from the bondage of the spiritual darkness of this world. Polytheism can actually be a terrifying thing. I'm reminded of a story that, this is the story that actually Martha told me, and I'm going I'm to mess it up, so it's okay. But I think it was during a time early in Bob and Martha's missionary activity when they were in a certain African country, and they were meeting with church leaders, and an iguana showed up. And the leaders were terrified because they considered iguanas to potentially be a witch doctor which had transformed into an iguana. And they were certain that a curse was going to happen because of the presence of this iguana. And Martha and Bob were like, it's an iguana. And when nothing happened, the people listened and learned to trust that maybe there was something to this Christianity after all. Christianity frees us. This understanding that you worship God alone frees you from 
superstition and worrying about the powers of all these other spiritual powers because they, compared to God, have none. Another friend of mine told me about uh, a PCA pastor up in Philadelphia. He had an exchange student staying with him who, happened to, who was a, a Saudi, and a very wealthy Saudi who was studying in the United States. And, um, you know, Saudi, he's, he was, he was uh, practiced uh, Islam, which is theoretically a monotheistic religion, but is oftentimes in the ground. It's incredibly superstitious and always worried about a lot of other uh, spiritual forces, at work, if you just read like Arabian Nights or something like that, you know, notice all the, the spirits that are always doing crazy things to people, right? And this Saudi was there eating breakfast, and my friend takes a pot of boiling water and goes and starts pouring it down the drain because they had made their tea. And the Saudi jumps up and says, Stop! Don't do that! Don't pour boiling water down the drain! You'll anger the jinn that lives in the drain! Deadly serious! Worried and terrified about angering the spirit which might live in the drain, and you boiling boiling water down it would make him upset. And he's and when God says, "I am the Lord your God," He frees us from that sort of bondage. Uh, Duma, a uh, Dutch theologian, writes: "The one who serves Yahweh will live under His blessing." But the one who serves idols will languish in bondage. When we worship God, who is, at the, who is the creator of all, a rock becomes just that, a rock. A tree is merely a tree. A person is only a person. Or you could say a drain is only a drain, and an iguana is only an iguana. Or a chameleon. Um, a person is only a person, and even an angel is nothing other than a servant for whom no man needs to bow. For the whole world, including everything that might arouse fear, is subject to him who wants to be our Father in Christ Jesus. And with that confession, every bondage that enslaves a person to something creaturely, no matter what it is, has in principle been broken. When God says, you shall worship no other God but me. He's freeing you. It's a liberating command. It's bondage that Christ has come to set you free. An invitation to worship Him alone is a comforting command. Frees us from the false idols and brings us to Himself. I want to close with words from Isaiah 55, which is a call to a people who have run after other gods and run after other things, and God looks at them and says, you're spiritually starving. You're running after things which can't satisfy. There's only one thing that can truly satisfy, and that's me, because I'm the maker. That's the way I designed it to be. And so God says to the starving people of Israel, Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this command to have no other gods besides you. That this command called to an exclusive relationship with you is because you alone are the true God, the creator of heaven and earth. We thank you that you call us to have our whole hearts devoted to you. This comprehensive command because you call us to find our joy and meaning in you. And that's a gift, Lord, that we don't need to serve the creature but let, rather you are the Creator who delights in giving good gifts to His children. In serving you is where we find our true joy and fulfillment. And Lord, I thank You that You come and You give us this command, freeing us from the idols and bondages which we create or which are imposed on us, Lord. I pray that anyone who is in bondage here, whether it's to some secret sin or whether something in their life has risen and has such power over them in fear. Lord, free them from that. Bring them to Yourself. For You have conquered death and hell in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't need to be slaves. And we don't need to starve. Lord, be our God, and may we be Your people. In Jesus' name, our great Savior, we pray. Amen.